Keep a finger in the Isaiah 30s and turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to begin just briefly in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is a good example of the kind of situation that we see in Isaiah that we experience in our lives as well. But we're going to start here today to see how this is a a theme, a problem, a reality that we need to, to account for in our lives just as it was then as well. In Jesus' day and in Isaiah's day. So in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, look down there, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. I'm sorry, uh, we'll start in, yep, yeah, in 28. Jesus stands up and he says, he declares, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is that your favorite verse or what? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We love those verses because of this invitation to come and know rest at a soul-deep level from Jesus. That Jesus, in who he is and what he can do for us, can bring us into that place of absolute rest. But I want to just frame it in the context of Matthew 11. So look a little bit earlier with me to verse 20. Matthew 11:20. Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So they had seen God do wonderful things through Jesus, but they did not return to the Lord. So Jesus is saying, I can give you rest. And he did mighty works to prove it, but they didn't return to him, return and rest in him and be saved, like Isaiah 30, 15 says. What were they doing instead? Look up with me at verse 12. Jesus levels this critique at these cities, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, at the top part of the Sea of Galilee. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What he's saying in that somewhat cryptic phrase, he's saying that you are committed to a path of violence to try to achieve God's ends for your life. You're trying to save yourself and save the nation of Israel through violence. Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum were sort of like the Afghani hills for the Taliban. This was where the Jewish guerrilla war warriors would gather away from the eye of the, uh, the Roman Empire and the Roman centurions and would train and recruit. And this is where they would go to foment the revolution against Rome that would ultimately come in the, the AD 70 uprisings against Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so Jesus is speaking to these people, people that he grew up among. And he says, I did all these mighty works, but you're not returning to the Lord and resting in the rest that he is wants to give you and me. Instead, you're staying committed to your own power, your own path, your own plan, and not mine. So there's a tension, I want want you to see this tension between the rest that God offers us, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and what we're trying to do by our own strength, by our own agency for ourselves. There's a perpetual temptation for us and the temptation is that I can do it, I must do it, and I must, it must happen now. It must happen now. 
J.R.R. Tolkien, writing at the beginning of the 20th century, he captured this, uh, this, the, the renewed power of this temptation in the modern age. So if you remember his story of the, the hobbits taking the ring, the hobbit taking the ring to Mount Doom to try to destroy the ring of power. And the ring of power is this extraordinary little sort of, we would call it like an idol kind of thing, that offers to anybody who wears it unlimited power. And everybody that the ring comes in contact with is presented with this temptation. Take the ring, take this, this exaggerated sense of your own importance, your own power, your own ability, and put it to use to fight evil, to accomplish God's will for the world. That's exactly what the guerrilla fighters of Chorus and Bethsaida were doing. They were trying to take a hold of this power and for themselves accomplish God's will for the world. But the whole point of that that uh, little hobbit's journey with that ring is to destroy that thing, to destroy that temptation. And there's never been a moment in human history where that temptation is more, we're just under, under it. We're just underwater with this temptation. Right? Think about our, our, our ancestors' lives 300, 400 years ago, right? They're completely at the whims of bacteria, diseases, the weather, right? Everything was agricultural, so a big storm or a hailstorm, and it wipes out this or it wipes out that. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't go anywhere. Transportation was very limited. Communication was very limited. If somebody was out to sea or somebody was on a journey, you didn't hear from them. You didn't know what happened. You had no idea. Now think of all of the different revolutions that have happened in the last 150, 200 years that have made us the masters of our world. Agricultural technologies. Where we don't even, we're not even worried about it. I just watched a little uh, mini documentary on YouTube about a, a factory, just a warehouse, where they're growing 70 acres worth of plants on you know, a parking, si- parking lot sized parcel of land vertical farming and LED lights. We've got the technologies to just kind of do whatever we want agriculturally, medically. Think about transportation, air flying, I mean, right, communication technology. Even like when I was growing up, if you wanted to get a hold of somebody in my house, you had to let it ring, right? And ring and ring and ring and ring. And, and now you're constantly accessible. So all of these things convince us that we have this power, this agency over our lives, that when we see a good that, w- that the world needs, when we see something that we desire, that we want to accomplish for ourselves, we believe that we can do it. So this extraordinary moment. It's a fearful moment, right, because of this as well. In James chapter 1, verse 19, James writes, uh, the anger of people, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. That's what Matthew 11 is in those rebels. That, that's the temptation for us to accomplish the righteousness of God, to see something that makes us angry and then to address it with our power, with our intelligence. This is what they're dealing with in Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 31, the passage that Lily read for us. Let's see what, what they're doing here. It's the same temptation that you and I live by. Chapter 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many and horsemen because they're strong. This is what we do, right? We look, we're, we're counting heads, we're counting strength, we're comparing statistics. What is going to help me get the thing that I want done done? And we do not, as he goes on to say, we do not look to the Holy One of Israel. We do not consult the Lord. So Egypt is part of Israel's plan, but so also is verse 7. 
where Isaiah talks about someday coming after the Lord works, when everyone shall cast away their idols of silver and idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Right? These are things that they're making to try to empower them, to, to try to still, again, accomplish salvation for themselves. So this is what they're doing. They're relying on idols. They're relying on Egypt and the world. They're relying on their own plans and their own ability to get the outcome that they desire done. But the Lord says what? Isaiah thirty fifteen again. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. As we saw at the beginning of this little miniature series here last week, that the Christian life progresses, it advances, it, 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 may, it grows through a series of stops. Return means stop going the way you're going and come back. And rest means stop doing what you're doing. Stop. Stop trying to save yourself. In returning and rest you shall be saved. Stop going your way and doing your thing to try to save yourself. God wants to bring us to a place of trust, returning, rest, quietness, and trust. He wants to bring us to a life where we are living constantly aware of the presence of God and reliant on Him for whatever curveballs come our way. That's where God is trying to bring us. He's trying to bring us to, remember we looked at this in chapter 32, that quiet resting place. A kind of life where we are okay, we're okay. Because we're trusting the Lord. We're resting in Him. We're quiet before Him. How are we going to get to that place? And here's the message of the Bible very clearly stated here for us. How are we going to get to that place? Friends, we're going to be carried or we're not going to get there. We're going to be carried there or we're not going to get there. It's going to be by grace or nothing. That's how we're going to get there. In returning and rest, we shall be saved. This fundamentally, resting in the Lord, is, it's the basis for the Christian life. It's not good behavior. It's not church attendance. It's not Bible reading. It's none of these things. It's hearing the word of the Lord and resting in what he said. Here's one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner. Uh, this quote I love this quote. It's a little bit longer, so just hang on with me for a second. He says, To do for yourself the best that you have it in you to do. To grit your teeth and clench your fists in order to survive the world at its harshest and worst is by that very act to be unable to let something be done for you and in you that is more wonderful still. The rich man is so effective at getting for himself everything he needs that he does not see that what he needs more than anything else in the world can be had only as a gift. This is the invitation of Scripture to us. This is the invitation of the gospel of grace. Rest in the biblical imagination, I want you to understand briefly here, is not just the sort of idyllic hammock beside the pond with a light, you know, light breeze swaying you gently, uh, you know, but not so gently you knock over your lemonade. This is not the vision uh, biblically of what rest is. Rest was part of their, um, their spatial journey 
So they, were, they needed to return from exile, from Egypt, from the world. And the world in the, mind, in the, in the biblical imagination was a place of, of course, idols. Idols who demand slavery and ceaseless production. This was the experience of Israel in Egypt. And so they needed to return from that to the Lord. And to be with the Lord was to live in a, a world of, of steadfast covenant love. A world of grace and mercy new every morning. A world of very sure promises. A world where you could finally at last rest. You remember when we, when we studied the book of Exodus, we saw how in the first several chapters, there's this repeated emphasis on Pharaoh saying, you know, more bricks, no straw. There's this constant, ceaseless productivity and, and slavery. And then as soon as they're set free from that, as soon as God works for them and they go out and they get to know the Lord, the first thing he does is he says, hey, the buffet's open, right? Manna every day, you don't have to sow or reap. Water from the rock when you get thirsty. I'm going to take, and, and he institutes the Sabbath. I'm going to take care of you very differently than the world and its gods and your idols are going to take care of you. In the biblical imagination, rest is living in God's grace. Life in that place physically for the Israelites, but not just physically, because you could live in the land and not be at rest before the Lord and not be living in His love. Rest is living in His grace. And this, uh, this word rest is actually used throughout the Old Testament to convey this. God says several times to Joshua, to, Abraham, uh, to Moses, I'm going to bring you into the land and I'm going to give you rest there. And in the Psalms through David, he talks about that first generation that came out of Egypt and didn't uh, follow the Lord. He says, they did not enter my rest. They didn't enter my, they didn't get into the place that I wanted to give them. And so actually the author of Hebrews in the New Testament says this. He says, if Joshua, the guy who had led Israel after Moses, if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. So here's what rest is. Rest is hearing the word of God, believing it, and relaxing. So you've got to hear the word of God, believe it, so everybody here would check those boxes, but then can you relax? The alternative is to trust yourself. And we see this throughout Isaiah 30. Look with me at verse 9, Isaiah 30, verse 9. They are a rebellious people. They are lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They say to the seers, don't see. And to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what's right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. We want to do it on our own, in our own way. Even in, in verse 15, when the Lord extends this great invitation, it says at the end of verse 15, but you were unwilling and you said, no, we're going to flee on horses. We got this, God. We are going to do it. We can figure it out. We can create the, the tools, the weapons we need. We, with the help of these other gods, can create the technology we need to accomplish these things for ourselves. But what happens when we do it on our own? What happens when we do it on our own? Let's keep reading there after verse 11. 
In Isaiah 30, he says, Therefore says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, which breaking, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. I was hiking along uh, one of the rivers in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and there was a curve up ahead. And my friends and I heard what's... When you're at the bottom of a canyon, you're always kind of worried about loud cracking noises, right? We heard this astonishingly loud cracking noise. And so we thought we were all going to die right that second. Well, a half a second later, we, we felt a huge thump. And we, we rounded the bend in the trail... And there was a rock the size of four school buses in a cube laying on the side of the riverbed on the opposite side. And we all just worshiped the Lord <laughs> in, in, in gladness, right? Like this is the picture here of what life is like for us in, when we do it our way. We build this, we build this high tower. We build this, this great uh, testament to our achievement, to our power. But there's a little flaw in there that we don't see for a while. And we keep putting it off till next season. There's this bulge in the wall above our heads. And then one day we're walking by surfing our phone and the, the tower comes down. This is, what, this is what happens when we do it on our own. We can do a thing and it can look nice for a little while, but it is going to come down. In Isaiah 31, verse 3, the passage that Lily read again, 31.3, the Egyptians are man, they're not God. Listen, how do I say it any clearer? Your person, not God. Those things you're trusting in are, are byproducts of you and your ingenuity. They're not God's ingenuity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh. They're not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper's going to stumble and he who's helped will follow perish together. This is what is going to happen. We do not have... The power, we do not have the ability, we don't have the intelligence to successfully try to accomplish what we are trying to do for ourselves. We just cannot do it. Here's what we do, though. What we do is we, we, we shoot our arrow and then we draw a target around where it landed. Right? That, this, is, this is the world. This is what we do. We're, oh, I did what? Look at that target. I hit the bullseye. Right? This is, I think this is what yachts are. Right? Like everybody, you know, like rich guys at some point, they're like, I, I just spent 30 years of my life doing this great thing. And I've got a yacht. I've got a, this is, this is the target. We put that on boats. Like, yeah, this is what you want. Try to get the yacht. And everybody who gets a yacht, I mean, you guys who have yachts, you know, right? It's just, it's not what it's cracked up to be. It's just not what it's cracked up to be. That's, a, that's just us drawing a target around an arrow that we shot and missed. Do you remember the first fail video you ever saw on the internet? I remember exactly where I was. The first time one came through an email to me from a friend. A friend shared a video with me via email. And it was a person rolling their ankle playing tennis in slow motion. Come on, people. This is what human history is. It's a slow motion fail video. We just can't do it. We just can't do it. We are saved by grace, and we live by grace, but we tend to forget all about all this grace. And so, I want to talk about something that God has given us to help us rest in Him. 
And these, these ideas are so closely attached that they're, they're, they're the same word. And the word is Sabbath. This is, uh, this is what God has given us. This is resting in Him as an act, as a thing to do. Sabbath is, in Scripture, a necessary practical rhythm to enable God's people to rest in Him. You know what's interesting about the Sabbath? Let me just give you two little factoids here. The, the Sabbath was instituted before sin. So I always tended to think of Sabbath as being like, well, because I'm such a sinner, I need this break. But it's actually because you're such a human. Because you're such a human that you need this break to refocus your life on the Lord. And then, when we come to the second kind of place Sabbath is talked about, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the center of the list, and it's the largest by far. Almost 50% of the words in the Ten Commandments are about the Sabbath. Because it's essential, but also because it is the least comprehensible to us. Like, What? Stop working, but then that guy's going to get ahead. We don't, we don't really love it. In the New Testament now, they don't really talk a lot about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day as a day uh, evaporates from being sort of the command that Christians are under. But what we've observed for the last 2,000 years of church history is that everybody who's wise applies the wisdom of the commandment to their life. They make space in their life for it, right? Because as you and I know, if, we, if it doesn't get on the schedule, it doesn't happen. It has to have space in our schedule to take up space in our hearts. Because that's just, that's just how human beings function, right? God calls us to rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. And he, and he gives us Sabbath to help. So we need a rhythm of intentional, grateful rest. We need a, a practical rhythm of intentional, grateful rest. Right? God, when he, when he commanded the Israelites to keep Sabbath, He said every seventh day. He also said every seventh year. He said every seventh, seventh year. Like This was a, a rhythm of rest in their lives. We need this rhythm of intentional, grateful rest. Now what happens when it's ignored? What happens when, well, this is, we're kind of what happens when it's ignored. But let me tell you an even more horrific story. Uh, in the, after the French Revolution which I don't really know my French history that well. You probably know it better than I do. But after the French Revolution, uh, part of which was uh, against the church and against the Bible and against God and His ways, they, they got rid of the seven-day week. They got rid of the seventh day. And they said, now all workers are going to work ten-day weeks. And they just thought, we are going to explode in productivity. We've thrown off the shackles of these antiquated religious values. And what they found almost immediately is that the economy collapsed and suicides exploded. And then what's really interesting for the Bible nerds out there is they, they literally were patterning their society and their thinking about the calendar off the Egyptian calendar. So, not good. There is salvation in no other name besides our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. These rhythms of practical rest will help us truly learn to rest in these words. 
for us to truly rest in those words that there is salvation in no one else. Stop saving yourself. Come to Him and you will find the rest that you are working so hard to achieve. But we need these practical rhythms as well. I said that uh, I'm preaching on, on Isaiah 30, 15 in part because I love this verse and has been so useful and helpful in my life. But I'm also preaching on it in part because I'm preparing me for the sabbatical that's coming up this summer and preparing you as well. So I want to just talk briefly about the pastoral sabbatical in relation to this. Uh, I think probably a lot of people, when they hear that a uh, pastor is taking a sabbatical, they think, well, geez, that must be nice. <laughs> I hope it is, but that, that is sort of a, how everybody thinks. But it, it's actually a good, uh, I want to share with you, it's a good example of seeing how, how difficult rest is. Right? When, when, when you come to church and we tell you to rest, how hard is it to rest? It's a lot harder than you think it's going to be, isn't it? That's why in the Ten Commandments, 50%, almost 50% of the words are about the Sabbath because we're like, that's the one we're going to fight about the most. That's the one we're going to fight against the most. In fact, in, in the book of Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews invites his congregation to come and enter that rest through Jesus, he says, strive to enter the rest. Like, it's going to be a hard job to actually do this thing in your life. We don't really like it. Pastors don't like it. You know, we all say that we want rest, but we are driven by a need. We, we just can't. We need to keep accomplishing. We need to keep cleaning. We need to justify our existence and our lives. We need to keep getting better and improving ourselves. And the world says, fantastic. The world says, ceaseless productivity as long as you don't ever stop doing what you're doing, oh, and probably these other things too, you will then finally be who you want to be, and you will at last get done what it is you feel you need to get done. And God says in Scripture, yeah, that just hasn't worked really. You need me. I just want to tell you, pastors don't want to rest either. Most every pastor I know has worked their entire pastoral life for at least six days a week every week. And many of them, seven days a week. They, they can't, they won't, they can't take any rest. They only take a sabbatical typically after some sort of undisguisable failure. Which is a terrible thing to have happen, but the alternative, which is where you feel like you're not doing enough or you feel like people are judging you for not doing enough, that's far worse for most pastors. So they do more than they should, which of course is the most foolish thing possibly for the work that pastors do because what we do most obviously needs God in it. God to change people's hearts. God to get people's ears. God to draw people to Himself. And yet... We are just the best examples of the foolishness that we all live with. Because truly, you need God for all of your work and activity just as much as I do for all my work and activity. Mine's just a little bit more obvious because I can't grab the wrench and turn it to uh, you know, change everybody's lives and, and, and bring people to the Lord. So it's less confusing, but it's no less silly for me. So a rhythm of intentional and grateful rest is something we all need. 
It's really difficult to move our sense of identity from off of our accomplishments or our intelligence, the work that we're doing, off of those things and moving our sense of who we are to the Word of God. But listen to this. If, if we're to be people who are going to invite the world to God's salvation, we can't be people who live like we need to be saving ourselves. If we're going to invite them to know the Lord's salvation, we can't live like people who are desperately trying to save and justify ourselves before God and others. If we want to invite people to know the great grace of our Lord, how can we live with such stress in all we're doing or such distress over all that we feel we're failing at? If we're going to be the the beacons of this grace and this message of salvation in the Lord alone, how can we live with such stress and such distress? So we do need, we need pastors, we need somebody to model the healthy Christian life for us, to be somebody who knows Jesus and so can be this unanxious presence to, who, who has something like rest in his soul. So let's talk a little bit more about rest now. What is rest? First part of rest is stop. Stop the work that gives you a sense of significance or a sense of security. Stop the things that you think must be done and I must do it. One of our favorite verses, this is a, a, you know, on, on probably somebody's wall in here, right? A, Be still and know that I am God. Love that verse? You know that, that phrase, be still, is better translated, knock it off? <laughs> it really is. I was like, what? Knock it off and know that I am God. Right? The Christian life is a series of stops. Stops. There's a rhythm of stopping, which is what the, the some Sabbath-ish thing, right? I'm not saying observe sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, uh, but with some kind of rhythm of practical, intentional, grateful rest. We need a rhythm of stops, but we really we're, what, what the Lord is inviting us into is a life of stoppedness. Not, not stupidness. Stoppedness. A life of stoppedness. So Sabbath and taking these breaks serves that rest, but it's not that rest. See, rest is... To do what we do without a sense of self-important urgency and need. Self-important urgency and need. I've got to do it. I've got to do it now. Can we live without that sense? Can we live with the sense that God has done all the big stuff and He's with me in all the little stuff? That's what rest is. Rest is living your day like God's done all the big stuff and He's with me here to help me with all the little stuff. So stop is the first part of rest. And the second part of resting is to recline thyself. Imagine the Lord's grace as a couch. I'm thinking of my couch at home right now. I love my couch very much. (laughs) Recline yourself, which means to put yourself, to put 
your life, to put all your concerns in God's hands. Tony talked with the kids today in our catechism cohort about prayer. Prayer is this. It's pouring out our hearts to God in praise, in petition, which is a fancy word for tell Him all the stuff that's bugging you and all the stuff you want. Confession of sin and thanksgiving. Put your life, pray to God. Put your feet up and let yourself be held. Listen to John chapter 10, what Jesus says here. Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus' hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is you. Jesus' hand, the Father's hand. Do you know yourself small enough to be held? Do you know how small you are? Do you know how big God is? Do you know God big enough to hold you? And do you know yourself to be held by Him? Do you see that indeed all things are held by Him? You think of the experience of somebody who is flying for the first time and and what are they doing to the armrests? They're pulling up on them. They're not making a contribution to their flight. This is us. You're not making a contribution. Relax. Watch the in-flight movie. You're going to get there just fine. No thanks to you. If you've ever had that joyful experience of the baby who is... uh, you know, and the baby who who's, doesn't want to sleep, right? And they're, they're howling and they're raging against, against what? Against rest. And then they just finally, you just feel it, right? That's this. Recline thyself. Rest in the arms of the Lord. Scripture invites us to make use of rhythms of intentional, grateful rest. To make use of rhythms of intentional, grateful rest so that we remember the Word of God. The Word of God that says, It is finished. He has done it. So go to Him and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people who we long for rest. We want to live in that place of trust. We want to know that that quiet, restful place that you invite us to under the kingship of our Lord Jesus. Led and pursued by your Spirit, and all within your sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise hands. Lord, we are so kept, we are so held, we are so saved. But we struggle with, we struggle with relaxing into that. 
We struggle with gratitude, with responding appropriately to your grace, and we struggle with graciousness ourselves. We struggle with judging other people. We struggle with feeling judged. We struggle with forgiving people. We struggle with feeling forgiven. We struggle with so much because we do not receive what you have done, what you have struggled and accomplished for us in Christ. Father, as Paul says in Romans 5, that the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom you have given us. Lord, would you pour your love into our hearts afresh this morning that we might see the love that you are inviting us into and the, the rest, the grace that you want us to not just know about, but to know and to live off of. Lord, I pray that you would build in every single one of our hearts right now such a pressure, such a longing that your Spirit would lead us to live this way, to be a people who can invite the world to your salvation because we, we live like saved people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.